Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, bringing quality care to your community through Harrisburg, Community Osteopathic, West Shore, Carlisle, Hanover, Lancaster, Lidditz, and Memorial Hospitals. More information is available at upmcpinnacle.com. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. More and more baby boomers are retiring every day. Most are retiring in good health compared to 65-year-olds of a few generations ago, and they're also living longer. Pennsylvania has one of the fastest-growing older populations in the country. As that segment of Pennsylvanians get older, it presents some challenges related to health, housing, and financial security. Tonight at 8 on WITF-TV, HealthSmart focuses on the aging boom, and so do we on today's Smart Talk. Joining us is Pennsylvania's Secretary of Aging, Teresa Osborne. Secretary Osborne, welcome to the program. Thank you. Also joining us is Kira McGuire, Health Smart producer and host. Kira, always good to have you on the program. Thank you for having me, Scott. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. As we have our discussion throughout the morning, uh, maybe you can... Uh, you know, can contribute to the conversation by answering this question. What concerns you most about aging as you do get older? What does concern you most about aging? Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. In 2010, over 21% of Pennsylvania's population was over the age of 60. In 2030, it will be closer to 30%. Now, that's roughly another 1.3 million people. Secretary Osborne, what are the challenges in broad terms that Pennsylvania faces with an aging population? Well, to be certain, as the aging population in Pennsylvania continues to grow, we have a a very vast dichotomy of who those seniors actually are. So we go from those baby boomers who are turning 60, 65 in increasing numbers, and that's expected to grow over the course of the next few years, of course. And we also have one of the fastest growing age cohorts of older adults age 85 and older. So the needs of seniors who are 60 to 65 to 70 are much different than the needs of our seniors who are 85 plus. So it means that we as a state, the Pennsylvania Department of Aging in collaboration with our sister agencies at Health and Human Services and Drug and Alcohol Programs, Transportation, so on and so forth, we really need to combine our efforts and best leverage our resources so that we in Pennsylvania can ensure that we're a state where our seniors can live and age well across the lifespan. You mentioned that population 85 and older. At one time, and I don't know whether this is still true or not, didn't we have the fastest growing 85 and older population in the country? We are among the states with the fastest growing aging cohort correctly. Yes, Mm. we are. You know, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, no, we were talking about 60 and over. Uh, that a lot there there's a lot of change expected, but people are healthier today at the age of sixty and sixty five at what age typically do they start needing services? It varies just like you know our quality of life and how we live and age and play and pray, where we grow, where we raise our families there's no magic age that says this is when you're going to need care. However, research and medical science will tell us that as we continue to age and we get past 70, 80, 90, chances are we have more chronic medical conditions. How we take care of ourselves when we're younger has an awful lot to do with how healthy we're going to be when we're older, which is why it's really important for us that we engage Pennsylvanians across every age and stage of life to ensure that they're eating healthy, they're taking care of their medical needs, that they're taking care of their social needs, spiritual needs, behavioral health needs. It's just really important that we have those resources available so that Pennsylvanians, when they're older, are healthier. And if we can keep folks healthier longer, then the stress that's on the home and community-based system would be less. Um, If we have less acute medical admissions to hospitals or readmissions to hospitals, and we're able to provide services and 
homes and meet the needs of individuals so they can age in place, whether it's the home where they raise their children or the home that they downsize to, um, if we're able to, to address their needs, meet their needs, and keep them safer, living longer at home, then those stressors on our system are less. And we're going to talk about all the things you just uh, listed. Kira McGuire, Health Smart, uh, tonight at 8 on WITF-TV. Whenever you're on the program, I always ask this question, what did you learn as uh, you were talking when Secretary Osborne appears on the program, but uh, some of the other people that uh, you, you spoke with on the program, what did you learn about the aging boom in Pennsylvania? Well, you know, I learned a, I learned a lot, obviously, but but something that really stood out to me. You mentioned in the beginning uh, of the show intro, um, you know, sixty five plus is kind of what we've always thought of as this um, senior age. You can get discounts places even earlier than that uh, for being a senior citizen. But when it comes to speaking to baby boomers, which I did as part of the show. Um, it really, baby boomers aren't seeing that as a senior age at this point in time. Um, if, according to a Pew Research study, they see that as 72 or after is is more so um, when older oh, age. Baby boomers baby see boomers, that, yes. 72 and older. Yes, and it's I, I believe it's because of this increase in life expectancy. People are living longer, and um, we do see more chronic disease, from what I learned, um, among the baby boomers because of the longer lifespan. Um, the the risk for dementia increases with longer lifespan. So there are some concerns for baby boomers, but overall, people are living longer. They're living happier and healthier um, to a much older age. So that's um, that's kind of what I heard, is, and, and some people were actually offended. I went to a, to a senior center to interview some baby boomers, and as I was there, they didn't really like the idea that it was called senior center. They like to eliminate the senior part of that and just say, you know, it's a place where they get together. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I, that's kind of what I took away the most. I have to admit that uh, when I turned 50 and got that first uh, AERP uh, application in the mail, <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> they had to make a mistake here, but no, I was 50. I had to admit. <laughs> that. But I can see that with baby boomers, yeah. and especially because so many people don't think of themselves as older. But something, Secretary Osborne, I'd like to establish right up front. In today's language, you know, now Kira said senior, and I know that there are a lot of people who do get offended when they are called a senior or called older. What is the in the Department of Aging? How do you refer to Pennsylvanians over a certain age as sensitively as possible? <laughs> I mean, it's just really important. I mean, you just disclosed when how you felt when you received right, your AARP right. card. I just received my AARP card not all that long ago as I turned fifty, and I had to pause and think back to wow, you know, time really does fly. And and what are my next ten? 10, 20, 30 years going to be if I'm blessed with longevity. So for seniors, often we'll refer to them as individuals, consumers of services, consumers of aging services. Um, anything that we can do to ensure that we're not stigmatizing or that we're not showing ageism to older adults. So there's always a sensitivity to language when we're working within the older, older population. You know, the Pennsylvania Lottery, for example, when they do their uh, commercials and they do their advertising, um, you know, I always pay attention to how they refer to, because the services here in Pennsylvania, we're the only state in the country where all proceeds from uh, the lottery goes for programs for older Pennsylvanians. But I'm always paying attention to how they refer to proceeds go to blank. Mm-hmm. So, but if, if you had to nail one term, nail down one term, what would it be? You know, for Pennsylvania specifically, for the great point that you just made of how blessed we are to have in Pennsylvania a lottery that does benefit older Pennsylvanians every day. And for me, with the privileged post as Secretary of Aging, caring for and responding to the needs of nearly 3 million Pennsylvanians who are age 60 and over, that branding from the Pennsylvania lottery every day when it says benefits older Pennsylvanians is critically important. So that is the one theme that I always pivot back to every time that I'm grateful to talk about the the lottery, the lottery fund, and how it does indeed generate funds to benefit older Pennsylvanians. And that benefit isn't just to the services and supports through the area agencies on aging and through our pharmaceutical assistance benefit program. It also is for property tax rent rebate program. It's also for transportation programs. And it's also for programs through our Department of Human Services 
services that supports older Pennsylvanians who are in a nursing home on medical assistance or or who are participating in the aging waiver program, keeping folks who are nursing facility clinically eligible and Medicaid eligible at home. That lottery fund is stretched across several different programs. So that branding to benefit older Pennsylvanians every day with even though folks not, might not want to be called an older Pennsylvanian or a senior or an older adult, that branding is so critical to Pennsylvania. So that's definitely the verbiage that we will continue to use. Uh, excuse me for jumping around here, but since we were just talking about lottery, uh, the state apparently has a budget. Uh, well, we're close to having a budget. Part of that budget uh, included the expansion of, of gambling. Uh, one in particular that I think about with uh, that would have a, could have an impact on the lottery is that uh, there will be online gaming. Does that concern you at all that uh, the expansion of gambling will cut into proceeds from the Pennsylvania lottery? That that is a concern that we hear from many. But from from my lens of life and serving in this Wolf administration and having a governor that previously served as the Secretary of Revenue, which oversees the lottery and the lottery fund. I, I know that we put every effort into ensuring that even with the gaming expansion, that there are opportunities embedded within it to always pivot back to the to the solvency of the lottery fund. So I am confident that even with other opportunities that we have to ensure that folks are understanding that when they play a certain lottery game, that it's going to benefit older Pennsylvanians. And that's where we, again, pivot back to that branding. So I believe we're giving individuals in Pennsylvania a choice in terms of how you're going to spend the funds that are available to you in order to participate in a game of chance. So I'm grateful that folks are really paying attention to what gaming expansion means in Pennsylvania, and most importantly, how we're going to ensure that we have lottery dollars available in order to indeed continue to benefit older Pennsylvanians. Kira, you mentioned that uh, you spoke with a lot of baby boomers. Mm -hmm. What are their concerns? Um, I, I believe most baby boomers are just concerned with how they can age gracefully. So we spent a long time um, on the show talking to physicians and talking to baby boomers and trying to figure out really what that recipe for aging gracefully is. And um, it's really not groundbreaking. It's um, it's the same things that uh, geriatricians spend time talking to their patients about. We spoke to one, um, one such doctor who says that he spends the most of his time t- telling people how to eat a healthy diet, how to exercise, maintain a healthy weight. And one of the big ones was avoid accidental injury. So um, once you reach a certain age, I guess he was saying he's thinking about it now. Um, he was in his 50s, I believe, and um, just kind of getting up on ladders, that kind of thing. Um, they start. He's starting to think about it more because one fall can do so much to what you look at as your future um, in aging and how you want to age in place. All of a sudden, you have other needs. And um, and so that's um, what he spends most of his time talking to people about. And people that take these steps, he finds that they are the ones that, um, although it's nothing crazy, they're the ones that, that have um, the greatest health for the longest amount of time. Secretary Osborne, something that Kira just mentioned, if I could zero in on just a, a you know, a specific issue. I mean, we're talking a a lot about broad topics here, but the fall issue, I mean, I know that there actually are programs, if you will, across the state, usually in the area, agencies on aging or senior centers uh, that teach people what to do to keep from falling. I mean, we've all heard, we probably all have relatives, older relatives, who have fallen, broken a hip, have had a hip replacement, knee replacement, those kind of things. But this would seem, I mean, that's the kind of thing that on a daily basis, rather than having that broad thought of, okay, how am I going to live 10 years from now, 20 years from now, something you have to worry about. Right. It's all about making good choices. And really for for the seniors of today, so if it's a baby boomer turning 60 or 65 or a senior who wants to retire at 75 and, and pursue other interests or, or pursue their happiness, as we do so often in Pennsylvania, or they want to further their education or just continue to volunteer in their community, everything that we desire to do, regardless really of age, is dependent upon one critical factor. And that critical factor is health. Right. So as you just mentioned, in our senior community 
centers, and we're sensitive to the fact that many seniors don't like them to be called senior community centers, so some have changed their name to active centers or just community centers where they're more intergenerational program. We do have an array of evidence-based programs that we actually try to provide anywhere where seniors congregate. So it could be in a community center. It could be in a faith-based community. But those evidence-based programs do focus on chronic disease self-management and also focus on healthy steps for aging and can tends keys for successful aging so that we are um, providing opportunities for seniors to to be engaged, to be active, to be healthy, to participate in programs that are going to keep them moving. So for the baby boomers coming in, that's one need that we see, that not only do they want access to community services, but they're also asking for gym memberships, Mm -hmm. for recreational opportunities. You know, we're blessed to live in a commonwealth with many parks and rails-to-trails programs. So the more that we can do to leverage those resources to get Pennsylvanians of all ages reaching those resources, such as in walking programs, you know, the better served and more healthy our Pennsylvanians are going to be throughout their lifespan. You know, something that uh, I I hope that there aren't a lot of people that still have this stereotype in their mind that someone retires at the age of 65 and then they sit in a rocking chair reading, uh, watching TV, not doing a whole lot, you know, playing with the pets, whatever, the grandchildren. That's not today's uh, older Pennsylvanian, is it? I mean, that just as you mentioned, as Pennsylvanians are getting older, they want to stay more active, and for their health, they need to stay more active. Absolutely. We all do. Pennsylvanians want to volunteer. They want to remain engaged and active in their community. And our seniors, in particular, have a wealth of experience to share. Which we never take advantage of. and don't as much as we should. Exactly. It's a treasured resource, right. and we need to tap into that every day. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, part of UPMC Pinnacle, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at upmcpinnacle.com spine. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about the aging boom, uh, tying into uh, tonight's uh, Health Smart on WITF TV called the Aging Boom. Kira McGuire, the Health Smart uh, producer and host, is on the program with us today, along with Pennsylvania Secretary of Aging Teresa Osborne. What concerns do you have about aging? Give us a call one eight hundred seven two nine seven five three two. Send an email to smarttalk at witf dot org. You can leave a message on uh, WITF's Facebook page, also on. Twitter, we are at Smart Talk WITF. Want to get into the healthcare aspect in just a moment, but we have a couple uh, clips from uh, tonight's show. Uh, Kira, I'm going to have you explain this a little bit. Steve Shaw, tell me a little bit about Steve Shaw. Sure. Steve Shaw is uh, a man that we were able to interview. He's a baby boomer um, at the very beginning of the boom. So um, he's going to talk a little bit about his concerns and, and um, his approach to aging. Well, right now, my wife and I are caregivers for my mother. Uh, she was 92, and we were doing things for her that she could no longer do for herself so that she can stay in her home, you know, by herself. Uh, we would like to be able to do the same, but as long as we're able to do the things that we need to do for ourselves, either hire it done or, you know, you, there are lots of services available now for that, or we can have family help us out as we're helping my mother, you know, we'd like to be independent. We like the size of the house that we're in, but we have a lot of yard maintenance, a lot of trees, about two-thirds of my property. I have about an acre and a quarter in property. Two-thirds of it's in trees. As long as I'm healthy, I can do, take care of that or I can have someone come in and do it. But we've, talk, we've had discussions about what do we do for the future, and what we've decided is we will have a periodic review. And it's, I think we're, we said about every five years we'll take assessment and say, okay, is this working for us? If it's not working for us, then we've, we've got to look for a plan B. The prayer or the, the request that we have is that as long as we're here on this earth, we have the strength to do what we need to do and the capability. But we would like to be able to have quality of life for as long as we can. 
Well, Kira, my first question is, did you help rake leaves? <laughs> that was me. That was me I thought that her, was. Yes. That just sounded like you were uh, raking. But I was Steve, Steve brought up uh, a number of points that he I'd does, like to yeah. touch on there. Mm -hmm. But uh, he, he talked about, first of all, caregiving. Yeah. And mm -hmm. there are maybe many baby boomers in that situation right now where they are caring for uh, a parent who is aging. But this presents a whole new set of challenges in itself. Mm -hmm. And he touched on them that you know, we'd like to be independent. I'm, I assume he's talking about his wife. Yes, uh, yeah, That we'd wife. like to be in independent and, uh, you know, they, they have want to have a life too. But right. this takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. Right, yeah. He's thinking about his, the caregiving he's doing for his mother. He's also trying to figure out, well, what is their aging plan? And that was a big focus of the show as well, is trying to figure out how you'd like to age and how you're going to make that happen. And Steve has a plan um, that he's revisiting every, you know, five years or so. He's going to make sure it's still working for them. Um, I'm sure this includes his mother as well and her caregiving. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a lot to think about, but he's he's thinking about it, and that's something we focus on in the show as well, is when do you start thinking about this? What are the things that you should think about? Um, Steve's talking about caring for his mother, but what if he needs a caregiver down the road, and um, who might that be? And, and if it's not a family member, then how will it be paid for? That's, our, that's such thing. So. Secretary Osborne, one of the things that Steve mentioned there uh, was it's obvious that he would like to stay in his own home, uh, and there are many, many people in Pennsylvania, probably, and I'm, I'm only doing this from observation, but if you ask them, that would be their number one priority, rather than going to an assisted living or to uh, a nursing home. Uh, although I did have seen statistics that 42% uh, of Pennsylvanians over the age of 70 at one time or another will go to a nursing home. But what's the state doing to try to keep people in their own homes as long as their health will allow? I really appreciate hearing Steve's story and look forward to hearing more about it later on tonight. But I, I applaud him and his wife and their family's efforts to, first and foremost, realize that they are aging. And things that they're doing today, they may not be able to do in a year or five years from now. So I, I really want to elevate that in terms of thinking about uh, what that one might need in the future as opposed it takes to planning. it does take planning and we all know while we hope to have good health and we hope to age gracefully hope is not a plan so really do appreciate that Steve is delivering that message to his peers because that peer-to-peer -peer relationship and that peer-to-peer -peer experience is so critically important. To answer more directly the question that you did ask, though, in terms of what Pennsylvania is doing, for certain, I, I did pivot back earlier to the benefit of the lottery and benefiting older Pennsylvanians every day. Specifically for the Department of Aging, that means for us, through our network of area agencies on aging, providing home and community-based services to individuals age 60 and over who need support in order to live and age well in their homes and their communities. So those resources are available. But we also know that some, folk are, some folks are aging and then they become sicker and frailer. Some folks are spending their resources on care, as Steve mentioned, in terms of can we pay for care when we have the resources to do that. Some folks have taken out long-term care insurance that does help them pay for care in their home and in their later years. But some folks don't have the resources to do that. So right now, Pennsylvania is poised on January 1st of 2018 to um, to launch in the southwestern part of the Commonwealth a program called Community Health Choices. And that program is the program that's going to allow Pennsylvania to ensure that our seniors, folks age 60 and over, and it's also for under 60 individuals as well, but if you are Medicaid eligible and Medicare eligible, it's health, community Health Choices will be the program that is going to be the platform for you to receive your home and community-based services, your long-term services and supports. So we are better leveraging our state dollars with federal dollars in order to ensure that we can provide an arena for individuals to live at home, which is where, as you just mentioned, everybody wants to live is at home. Is it cheaper? Yes. Well, we're hoping through this model of managed long-term care and services, and even though I just said hoping, and we know that hope is not a plan, <laughs> our intention is that through this model of Medicare managed care and working with managed care organizations, that we will have that public-private partnership in order to ensure that the services and supports are available for older Pennsylvanians to live and age well gracefully with independence and with the dignity and respect that they deserve. Let's take a phone call from William in Shermansdale. William, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Scott, morning. and to your panel. Yes, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Go ahead. I just wanted to mention, 
I'm a uh, retired postal worker, a rural letter carrier out of Mechanicsburg, but I have uh, joined the NARF, National Active and Retired Federal Employees, and they kind of look at themselves as a force to be reckoned with because we uh, actually attend meetings with our political um, candidates and all the ones that are in D.C. Uh, we're actually meeting today at Hosses in Carlisle for lunch. 20 to 30 of us get together, and we talk about the things that are going to affect us on a federal or state level. We get groups that come in, and I think we keep ourselves active just by knowing that we can make a difference and uh, have, have the changes. Mm. You know, from a political standpoint, uh, William, we know that uh, older Pennsylvanians and older Americans uh, tend to vote and do care about uh, what's going on in the country. Hey, thank you very much for your call. He brings up a couple good points, uh, Secretary. One is staying active and socializing. Uh, you know, I talked about that stereotype of people that are, you know, staying at home, maybe they're widowed, whatever. You know, that, that's a sad picture to paint, and it's probably not the, the, the typical one today. But a point that he makes about socializing, talking about issues, talking about just your lives is so important. It, it's critically important. And to the point that he raised, too, about rural Pennsylvania and being a rural letter carrier, we have many pockets of ruralness across the Commonwealth and across our 67 counties. And we have more seniors, more folks aging past the age of 60 into their 70s, 80s and beyond that live in rural counties. So I appreciate him sharing his story with us and also mentioning NARF. In, in any group, what is NARF? It's, I believe it's from what he described for the letter carriers and okay. the group that All he right. belongs to from what he just described. But um, you know, you think of other groups that are, are are around the Commonwealth, such as AERP that we mentioned being mm-hmm. proud card-carrying members of that association. You know, but there are so many other groups of, of, of seniors who get together on a regular basis who do that engagement, that civic work, that advocacy. You know, that is something that many seniors tell me that they desire to be engaged in, constantly asking us, how can we advocate to ensure that we have services and supports available for seniors? How can we advocate to ensure that our seniors your center's doors remain open. How do we talk to our local legislators? How do we talk to our federal legislators? I had a group of nursing home residents that wanted to speak with me a few months back, and their request, even though they live in a nursing home and that is where they're calling home right now because their chronic needs are so um, are so much uh, they're so intense that our capacity to get them back out in the community is is just not possible. But their big request of me, they felt disconnected from their legislators. And they wanted to know how I could assist them with developing a platform so that their voices could be heard. Just because one is receiving long-term services and supports in their home or at a nursing facility or in a personal care home doesn't mean that they don't want their voice to be heard. So the fact that seniors are recognizing that and we are able to advocate for a platform for their voices to be heard, that engagement is is critically important to one's own self-being and one's desire to continue to live and to thrive. I want to talk about health care because I would think that uh, this has to be the biggest concern of all. We know that uh, the cost of health care today, no matter what age uh, an American is, uh, is one of the biggest uh, issues that uh, we, we face, that insurance premiums are going up, the cost of health care itself for procedures, going to the hospital, the doctor, all those things going up. The numbers alone are scary. When you're talking about 1.3 million more people over the age of 60 within the next uh, 13 years, with the cost of health care going up, how can we possibly afford that? Yeah, I mean, that is a, is a question that each and every one of us that work in this field ask ourselves every day. And for us here in the United States, you know, our, our social safety net is anchored by three main systems, Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. And they are the three areas of care and concern that seniors ask me about most and, and ask me about how do they talk to their elected officials about ensuring that they're preserved and protected. And it also pivots back to how do we ensure that folks can continue to age well? How do we keep them healthier, longer? How do we ensure, as Kira mentioned earlier, that we're making good decisions? You know, my mom at 84 with six children decided one day that she should climb up on a ladder and change her light bulb. You know, thankfully she didn't fall, but when I discovered the the action later on and asked her about it, 
I said, what if you did fall? You know, this is why we need to encourage folks to make good decisions. Now, my mom was angry with me because she wants to remain independent and wants to change that light bulb on her own. And she raised six kids. And who am I to tell her not to do that, regardless of any title that I hold? Um, you tell her, I, did you pull out the Secretary of Aging card? I, I, I did. And it, it, yeah. it, it worked for like five seconds. Yeah, but, but that's the difference between moms and the other 13 million Pennsylvanians that I get the privilege to talk to. You know, but they're the good decisions that we're encouraging seniors to make. And this is also why there's movements such as the village movement, where communities are coming together in order to help one another so that a senior who needs that assistance doesn't have to take a risk of climbing up on a ladder or chair where they might lose their balance, but have a neighbor willing to help them. And then maybe that senior is helping to tutor their young children, you know, and and, and, I mean, there's just those wonderful opportunities that are occurring across Pennsylvania because folks are coming together and said, we want to make our communities livable. We want to make our communities dementia friendly. We want to ensure that Pennsylvanians can live and age well and do that with independence and with grace. What do you mean dementia friendly? Dementia friendly in this month of November, which is is dedicated, which is dedicated to Alzheimer's disease and and to caregivers. Um, Dementia friendly means that Think of the folks in your neighborhood. I had a presenter talk to us yesterday at our national, at our forum on Alzheimer's disease and other related disorders in Pennsylvania, and she commented about the Sesame Street song that many of us know so well. Think of the people in your neighborhood, the postman, the fireman. Who are the folks that you engage with every day, the folks at your bank, at your grocery store? What if someone was in their store and they saw them struggling? with finding something that they needed on a shelf. How are we training our cashiers, our bank tellers, our firemen, our first responders, in order to ensure that they can recognize someone with a dementia and intervene as opposed to just ignoring it or being afraid of it? So we are engaging with a whole host of other stakeholders to talk about dementia-friendly communities and educate folks about about dementia and Alzheimer's disease. By the way, uh, we had a caller, Kathy, who uh, said that uh, what would really help is the elimination of property taxes for older Pennsylvanians uh, because she feels like there's danger of losing her home. Uh, This is something that probably uh, the the legislature, they have been uh, talking about it, but uh, this is something that a lot of uh, Pennsylvanians, older Pennsylvanians in particular, are very, very concerned about. We only have a minute or so left. Uh, Kira McGuire, uh, uh, tonight, uh, just Mm -hmm. if you would, talk a little bit about how smart tonight. Sure. I mean, you can expect to, to hear more about pretty much everything that we've talked about here today and um, get a look at baby boomers um, talking about their concerns and, and how they plan to tackle them. Um, it's an issue that, that whether we're a baby boomer or somebody that could potentially be a caregiver for a baby boomer, um, we're all going to be affected by, by the aging population. We're all aging. So um, it's, a, it's an important topic, and it's one that affects us all. So I enjoyed producing the show and hope people enjoy watching it. <laughs> Kira McGuire is the producer and a host of Health Smart and Pennsylvania Secretary of Aging, Teresa Osborne. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. With all the attention on whether Russia interfered in last year's U.S. presidential election and if there was contact between the Trump administration or the campaign, I should say, in Russia, what is life like inside Russia under President Vladimir Putin? Russian author and activist Masha Gessen's latest book, The Future is History, looks back at the history and fall of the Soviet Union and then paints a picture of a nation that, although not communist, resembles a totalitarian state. Just last night, Masha Gessen won the prestigious National Book Award for Nonfiction for the Future is History in New York. And an opportunity to talk to her about uh, her appearance in Harrisburg. By the way, she's going to be in Harrisburg at the Midtown Scholar Bookstore Monday. Miss Gessen, welcome to the program. Thank you. Great to be here. The title of the book, The Future is History. Now, of course, there is a subtitle, but uh, let's talk about the main title, The Future is History. Why that title, the significance of it? So um, about halfway through reporting the book, um, and the book the book uh, centers on seven different characters. I call them characters, but they're actual real people whom I interviewed extensively for the book, with the exception of one whom I had to sort of report on uh, in, in other ways. Um, so um, about halfway through reporting, when we got to the late 90s and early 2000s in the chronology of our interviews, this phrase started coming up. In Russian, it's Budushevanyet, 
Um, it's a phrase that means there's no future. And I started thinking about what it means for a language to have an actual idiom for no future, right? It's, 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 it's a set phrase, and people use it often. And, um, uh, and they, they use it in circumstances when they feel um, that they have lost the ability to imagine themselves in a future. Often it's tied to a place. It's, uh, it's, there's no future in this country, or for this country there's no future. Um, and so that means that a person can't imagine themselves just going on um, it, where they're living, and immigration becomes the only option. But it was such a key concept. I mean, the ability to imagine the future is a key concept of human agency, uh, and, and I had been mindful of that. But then when people started talking about how there's no future, I realized that that was really the, the most important part of the book, and so that became the title. And, of course, uh, you know, it, it refers to the pun in the title, refers to um, the fact that I think that Russian 20th century history has influenced, not to say determined, Russia's current state to a great extent. And as you mentioned, the book is in kind of chronological order, or maybe not order, but uh, history. One thing I noticed very early on in the book is that history is very important to Russians, especially World War II or the Great Patriotic War, as it is known. And it continues to have an influence even today. Why? Well, history is important to, to any national story, right? But um, the question is, what historical myths do, uh, do nations choose to build their identity around? And the myth of World War II, right? And of course, you know, by, when I say myth, I don't mean that it didn't happen. It's not a lie, right? But there's a mythology built up around it. And the mythology of World War II um, is, uh, serves Russia's current story in the best possible way, which is why for the last 18 years under Putin, this particular myth has been amplified repeatedly and has really taken center stage in the entire national story. Um, there's a sociologist in the book, one of the seven main characters, Lev Gutkov, who I think puts it most succinctly. He says that World War II is the perfect myth because it shines its light both backwards and forwards. Backwards, it justifies all the state terror that came before it, all the gulags. And forwards, it justifies Russia's superpower status. And so when Putin talks about World War II, he always he means that Russia must get its superpower status back. That's the loss that, that, that he's most sensitive about. That's what he keeps objecting to, sort of Russia's loss of superpower status. And that's what he's demanding that be given back to Russia. And the myth of World War II is sort of the, is the one thing that legitimizes that claim. Something else I noticed is that Russians have a difficult time thinking about themselves. You mentioned uh, the sociologist who is one of the main characters. Uh, they have a hard time expressing themselves. Uh, they don't deal with emotions well. It doesn't seem to be a whole lot of compassion or sensitivity sometimes. All these things that we in the West kind of take for granted as making up Americans or Europeans. Talk a little bit about uh, how Russians think of themselves or don't think of themselves. So I don't want this to sound like I'm making generalizations about sort of Russian national character, because that's actually not what the what the book is about at all. And um, what I'm trying to talk about is uh, institutions, right, uh, both formal institutions, but also cultural institutions. Uh, and what I mean by that is that there, for, for over the course of many decades, the Soviet Union intentionally... Uh, destroyed the social sciences and the humanities. And um, that, you know, that destruction, that, that very purposeful destruction, right, when, uh, I mean, among other things, Lenin had a whole bunch of social scientists, philosophers, uh, and uh, sociologists, and economists exiled from Russia. And he said that was the humane alternative to the, to, to the death penalty, which would have been the only other option, in his opinion, right? Um, the idea behind that was that, first of all, pre-revolutionary social sciences were a threat to the new regime. 
but also that the new regime was going to build an entirely new kind of society. And a new kind of person was going to emerge in the society. And among other things, this person was going to be perfectly unconflicted because his individual goals were going to be in perfect concert with societal goals. So there would be no need for psychology because there would be no such thing as in a turmoil or conflict, right? If a person was uh, conflicted, if his or her goals didn't coincide with societal goals, then that person was either a criminal and belonged in jail or mentally ill and belonged to a psychiatric hospital. Uh, so there were institutional solutions to those. But there should be no such thing as, um, as cognitive dissonance or, or inner turmoil or emotional upheaval, right? So that um, when you intentionally destroy literature and conversation about these kinds of things, then people do indeed lose the ability to understand themselves and to move forward. The same thing happened with sociology. The same thing happened with economics. So um, Russian society was systematically robbed of the tools of self-understanding. You mentioned that history is a big part of the book, Soviet history, life after the breakup of the USSR. There was a, a, a prosperous period there, too. Uh, Boris Yeltsin, and then along came Putin. I want to go back a little bit uh, just before the breakup of, of the Soviet Union. Mikhail Gorbachev, here in the West, Gorbachev became somewhat of a hero during the Reagan era here in the United States. That uh, Reagan, or excuse me, Gorbachev opened up the Soviet Union and uh, didn't crack down on dissidents as much. But yet, there are many people in Russia who blame Gorbachev for the breakup of the Soviet Union. And again, one of the most striking parts of your book is that there are many, many people in Russia who long for those days, who are nostalgic about the days of, of, of the Soviet Union. Um, well, you know, first of all, all people are nostalgic. <laughs> Nostalgia is something that, uh, especially as we age, we would be, it would be strange if we didn't feel nostalgic. Right? I'm nostalgic for being able to, to pull three all-nighters in a row. Um, but um, there's a particular kind of nostalgia that accompanies extreme uncertainty uh, and, and, a, and a sense uh, of instability. And that's the kind of nostalgia, again, you know, we don't have to quite go to Russia to see that kind of nostalgia. We see it in the United States. I think that's what largely accounts for the rise of Trump. You know, nostalgia for an imaginary past in which things were more comprehensible, easier, uh, and the outlook for the future was brighter. Uh, and those, you know, those things are not lies, right? That nostalgia is for something that used to be there, but of course it's imagined as much better than, than it really was. So that's all at play in, in Russian nostalgia for the, for the Soviet Union, and Putin has used it very skillfully. Well, as for Gorbachev, uh, you know, he was a much more complicated figure than than he might look like from uh, 5,000 miles away or 5,000 kilometers away, um, and that's that's as it should be. But uh, in Russia, he was the hardliners hated him because he took away um, their certainty and their ability to use force in all situations, and he allowed for things to bubble, energies to bubble up in the Soviet Union that ultimately tore the country up, uh, apart. The Democrats don't like him because he wasn't decisive enough, because he didn't actually want to take down the Soviet Union. He wanted to liberalize it. Uh, it was an impossible project. The Soviet Union could not exist in a liberalized uh, uh, sort of iteration because it depended on the use of force to hold itself together. But in the end, yeah, Putin, uh, Gorbachev was um, is nobody's favorite. I mentioned Stalin, and it seems hard for us in the West to comprehend that Russians would be nostalgic for Stalin, who was responsible for the execution, the murders of possibly millions of people. Can you explain that? Well, um, you know, Stalin didn't personally executed those millions of people. There were other Soviet citizens who executed them. Often the executioners then became victims. Often victims were also in some way or another, well, in fact, not often, almost always, victims were in some way or another part of the system, complicit in the system. And so it's impossible 
to say, oh, Stalin executed Russians, and now they, how come they love him? Uh, Russia is a nation of both victims and executioners mixed together, always in the same family and often in the same person. So that is a legacy that is really possibly impossible to untangle, uh, and no one really made an effort to untangle that legacy because it's so frightening to approach. Yeltsin, during, in the 1990s, explicitly did not want to, to uh, undertake the project of reckoning with that history because he was afraid that it was going to create uh, too much enmity, too much division in the country. And so if that is kind of set aside as undiscussable, then what remains is the victory in World War II, which we've already talked about. And so Stalin becomes this figure of the commander-in-chief who won World War II for the world. And it's very easy, uh, and as time goes on, it becomes easier and easier to tell that story as the main story of Stalin. After Yeltsin... Vladimir Putin did come along, and this is what I want to move to now because this is probably what most contemporary Americans are interested in since there is so much attention on, you know, obviously what's going on between uh, Russia and uh, the Trump campaign, Russia and America, Russia tried to influence the campaign. You wrote, now it's not in this book, but you wrote at one time that Putin was an aspiring thug and that the backward evolution of Russia began within days after his inauguration in the year 2000. As I said, that isn't in this book in so many words, or in so many words maybe it is, but not those exact words. What did you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that within three days uh, of being inaugurated, in fact, in his first actual working day in office, Putin began the process of rearranging the Russian federal system and dismantling its electoral system, a process that took him three years to complete, and began the process of taking over the media, a process that took him one year to complete. Within one year of his coming to power, the state was in charge of all the national television channels. So the main source of news uh, for for Russians became the state. It's now a, a whole generation of Russians has grown up watching nothing but Putin TV. And in fact, Putin himself has been watching nothing but Putin TV for the last 17 years, which makes a difference in his world outlook. I don't want to get too far away from the book, but you had your own dealing with Putin on a personal basis. So I was, at the time, I was editor-in-chief of a popular science magazine, in fact, the the biggest magazine in Russia. And um, I was, uh, Putin had a real liking for this popular science magazine. And so he asked that I send a reporter to cover his hang gliding adventure with the Siberian crane. And I knew that no matter how I played it, it would be death for the magazine, uh, or at least for me as its editor, because if I sent a reporter, the reporter would inevitably see something that uh, if we put it in the magazine, you know, Putin wouldn't be happy because just because of the way the, these things are um, organized. The animals always suffer. And if I didn't, so I said I wouldn't send a reporter. I said to the publisher, look, we're a popular science magazine. I mean, we can, we don't have to do this. We don't have to send a reporter to to politicize the event. And the publisher fired me. And Putin, who really likes the magazine, thought that the publisher was overreacting. When, he, when Putin likes something, he thinks he owns it. So he called me into his office to um, offer me my job back. And you didn't accept? It wasn't his to offer back to me. He didn't own the magazine. He had the power to appoint the editor. The publisher certainly would have listened to him. But I I couldn't accept that offer because then I would have been appointed to my job by Putin. Here in the United States, one of the big concerns, it's always uh, an underlying thought, especially for those of us who lived through the Cold War, uh, is Russia's military might. Uh, During Putin's reign, there's been war with Georgia, the Ukraine, and he annexed uh, Crimea. 
So that looks a whole lot to Americans, or at least those of us of age to remember it, like uh, the Cold War and some of the expansionism of the Soviet Union or attempted uh, expansionism. Uh, what is Putin thinking with uh, the, these military adventures? Um, you know, I really object, actually, to the term military adventures because um, that's a way of uh, – that's, 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 that's a term that the Obama State Department used to use so as to avoid using the word war when talking about Ukraine. It's not an adventure. It's a war. Right. Uh, Putin has uh, Putin's Russia has fought three wars, uh, well, four wars, one inside in Chechnya and more generally in the North Caucasus, uh, starting from the moment Putin became prime minister in August 1999. And, and it, it's still actually going on. In 2008, uh, Russia annexed a part of Georgia, about a third of Georgia, in fact. Uh, and in 2014, Russia invaded Ukraine, occupying Crimea and part of eastern Ukraine. And of course, since 2015, Russia has been bombing Syria. So um, that's not a Cold War. That's that's a lot of proxy wars with the United States. I mean, not in Chechnya, but everything else is perceived in Russia and is fought by Putin as, as a proxy war with the United States. Now you might ask, you know, what, what, how does Russia possibly perceive Ukraine as a proxy war in, with the United States? Well, in Russia's mind and in Putin's mind, uh, the United States orchestrated a change of regime in Ukraine when, uh, when the people overthrew an incredibly corrupt president, um, and so he believes that it's kind of an annexation attempt by the United States, and Russia is bravely fighting back on what it perceives very much as really its own territory. How would today's Russia compare with the Soviet Union? Um, well, it depends on what you mean. Uh, how, um, let's, let's put it a little differently. How does life in today's Russia compare to life in the Soviet Union? People are living certainly much better, much, much better, uh, on average, right? Uh, even people who are very poor are less poor than the poor were in the Soviet Union. And people who are middle class or wealthy are much, much uh, more materially comfortable than they were in the Soviet Union. At the same time, they have a lot less certainty in being able to maintain the standard of living that they have, in being able to maintain what they have. Um, and as time goes on, they have less and less agency. That's Masha Gessen, and she'll be at the Midtown Scholar Bookstore in Harrisburg Monday, starting at 6.30. And as I mentioned, leading into that conversation, that she won a National Book Award last night for that book. Coming up tomorrow, a Smart Talk road trip to the extraordinary give in Lancaster. will be at L&P, so stop in and say hello. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at upmcpinnacle.com. 